The Department of Homeland Security and the General Services Administration are getting a cash influx to complete a handful of new construction projects. The funds will go toward new headquarters offices for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And you guess where? At St. Elizabeth's West Campus in D.C., where they're also building a new parking garage. The three projects are part of a long saga, a long saga for DHS headquarters consolidation. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, I just have to begin by saying I started covering this project when you were in grade school. So (laughs) finally, you are covering it now as one of our fine reporters. Tell us more about this money, where it's coming from, and how it's going to be broken down. Thanks, Tom. And, you know, this money is coming from the Inflation Reduction Act. It's coming just that we're hitting one year of the passage of that big bill and They'll be getting $288 million for these three new construction projects. And as you said, there has been this long saga of the DHS consolidation of their headquarters at St. Elizabeth's. These are the kind of final three big construction projects that are going to be underway pretty soon that will kind of bring that chapter to a close for DHS It's still a while down the road, but it is a step in that direction. Breaking down the funding, it's going to be about $140 million for the CISA headquarters, $80 million for ICE headquarters, and then $67 million for that garage and gatehouse that will expand parking at at the campus as well. Well, hopefully it'll have those little green and red lights so you can find a parking space. You know, that's what modern parking structures have. And they are going to have a big emphasis, I guess not surprising, on sustainability, the latest in architectural work for buildings that don't use so much power. Tell us more about GSA's goals there. Right. Because this was part of the Inflation Reduction Act funding and with GSA's goals of kind of moving toward this more sustainable federal building and those uh, types of buildings, there is a really big emphasis here, of course, on sustainable architecture as well. So that includes maybe, for example, in the parking garages, they're going to have electric vehicle charging stations. In terms of the actual building materials, they're going to be using low carbon concrete, steel and asphalt for the new construction. They're also going to be repairing existing structures, so not everything is going to be entirely new. And as I mentioned, this falls in line with both the goals of the IRA as well as larger sustainability goals from the Biden administration. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan told reporters on campus just last week what those sustainability plans will look like. We're going to be reducing the carbon footprint of these facilities dramatically. Uh, We're going to be lowering energy costs because of uh, smart Uh, investments in solar panels and LEDs and digital controlled lighting. It's going to lower energy consumption, and that means lower costs and a more resilient grid. In the end, what we want is for this to be a model, a model for what we can do here and around the country, because guess what? If we can do this in a national security setting, it can be done anywhere. Where the public could actually walk in and see the darn thing. It's not so easy to get in. And Drew, this headquarters consolidation project has been going on for years, as we said at the top, first announced in 2007. In fact, I walked through the old spooky leftovers of the St. Elizabeth's Hospital itself with then-administrator Loretta Doan. She wasn't there much longer. But yes, so I'm kind of excited to see this myself. And I know they've fixed up that building for headquarters of DHS. But what has been taking so darn long? Well, first of all, Tom, I think it's in part just because it's such an ambitious project. It's one of the biggest federal building projects since the construction of the Pentagon. So that it's just the sheer size and scope of the project is one of the reasons it's been taking so long. But other than that, they've also had uh, issues with budget and scheduling challenges. 
GSA and DHS have had to go back to the drawing board more than once to deal with all these different uh, budget constraints from Congress and other scheduling issues. There have been delays in construction. It's been ongoing now for more than 13 years. In the end, even though they've had some issues with with congressional appropriations that they've been requesting, they have come to a grand total so far of $3.2 billion in congressional appropriations over the this whole time period that the construction has been going on. It's a huge project, a huge undertaking, and I think that this funding might represent a step closer toward the finish line. I think they're looking just a few years out from now for when it's going to be completely done. Yes, and part of the problem is when Congress delays money, costs go up, and so they have never really funded it fully so they could get it you know, done at one fell swoop, but Mal, maybe they will. And what about the consolidation? Are they saving overall footprint space versus what they have now scattered throughout different parts of Washington? I mean, I remember when early on in the days of DHS, they were everywhere. And then they have this Northwest headquarters, you know, not too far from Maryland border and so on. Are they going to reduce their total footage when they're done? By a lot, Tom. I think this is going to represent a major decline in the actual physical footprint that DHS does take up. The cost savings as well to the taxpayer, they talked about that a lot at this press conference, that it's going to save $1.3 billion over the next 30 years. DHS has 22 components, so there's a lot of different moving parts here. But the idea at the end of the day is to consolidate leadership, staff members for better collaboration, and just take up a smaller physical space. It's also a more secure setting at St. Elizabeth's campus. And DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas described what this will mean for the department. We'll take our total number of locations from 40 to 6. This will reduce the DHS footprint by over 1.2 million square feet. That is 27.5 acres of land or the equivalent of 21 football fields of space. Doing so will save the taxpayers tens of millions of dollars annually. Bringing the DHS, CISA, and ICE together under one roof at St. Elizabeth's will increase departmental mission cohesion and streamline inter- and intra-component collaboration. And probably four secretaries past him will actually set foot in the place. And when do they plan to start? actual digging, their shovels hitting the ground, and do they have a completion date? They're planning to start on the CISA headquarters building first in early 2024, so just a couple months away now, and then late 2024 will be the ICE headquarters building. That's when they're going to break ground for that one. They're saying that once those construction projects are completed, about 6,500 DHS staff will be moved to St. Elizabeth's campus, and by the end of the overall project, that whole campus will house about 12,000 DHS employees, so that's a huge growth over time. The current estimate for total completion is 2027. Any chance there will be, a say, a Chick-fil-A on the campus so people <laughs> don't have to drive for a half an hour just to get somewhere for lunch? You know, I guess anything is possible as long as you get through the security checkpoints. <laughs> All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 
I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE, 
gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, 
and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.